15, verses 12 through 34. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, are all of, we of all people are most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong in Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet." The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. In 2011, the hip-hop, Canadian hip-hop star Drake wrote a song, produced a song, recorded a song that made this expression, which when I say it, most everyone in the room will know what it is, made it famous. And the expression is YOLO. What does YOLO mean? You only live once. Here are the words, not all of them, that would not be possible, but here are the words from Drake's song. Listen, I'm the blank man you don't get it, do you? Type of money, everybody acting like they knew you. Go uptown, New York City. Some Spanish girls love me like I'm Aventura. Tell Uncle Luke I'm out in Miami too, clubbing hard. Wrist bling, got a condo up in Biscayne. How you feel? How you feel? How you feel? 25 sitting on 25 mil, uh? Getting paid, well, holla whenever that stop. I'm skipping certain parts, and you're grateful. Uh, we got Santa Margarita by the leader. You already know, though, you only live once. That's the motto, YOLO. 
We bowed it every day, every day, every day. Uh, like we sitting on the bench. We really don't play. Every day, every day. Blank what anybody say. Can't see him cause the money in the way. His uh, philosophy that he puts forth in this song is that you only live once. And since you only live once, here's how to live that life you only live once. Have places in New York City, in Miami, in Biscayne. Have women everywhere you go. Have all the booze, drugs mentioned later in the song that you want People want to see you because of all the money you have, because of all the fame that you possess. That's why people want to hang with you. And since you only live once, then live it up. Since you only live once, do whatever you want to do. And here's what is interesting, is that if he were right, he and Paul would agree Because Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, if if there is no resurrection, then eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If you only live once, then live as as if there is no other life than this one. Paul says, if in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you only live once, live it up. Now, the reality is that most people in this room would say, I believe in the resurrection. Some of you may have an intellectual argument with it, and I'm glad you're here. You may struggle with the veracity of the resurrection, and if you do, I'm glad you're here this morning. But most of you do not. Most of you believe in the resurrection. Most of you do. But there are some of you who, practically speaking, believe you only live once. This morning, it's a little bit after 7, I pulled out of my driveway to head here. Uh, I'd just gone a few hundred yards when to the left, this guy's out there at 7.10, 7.15, washing his truck early on a Sunday morning. As I was driving by and I saw him washing his truck, the thought came to my mind, I wonder if he believes in the resurrection. I wonder if he believes that there is something after this life. I thought of, um, this is a small county, 44,000 plus live here. 65% of them are unchurched. That's 28,500 people who may not articulate it like Drake did, but they believe you only live once. If they believe that you lived more than once, you lived somewhere else, wouldn't they want to do something about that? If you truly believe that there is life beyond this one, wouldn't it motivate you on a Sunday morning, on a, on a resurrection day in a sense, to get out of bed and get to church? And if you believed that you live more than once. And then there are those sitting in this room who practically 
You believe you only live once. You say, Jerry, how could you assert such a thing? Well, I know it's bold on my part, but the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money suggests that all the time in the world you're going to have is on this planet. And so you better spend it on yourself. Paul said that if you only live once, if there is no resurrection of the dead, there are dire consequences. What are they? Let's look at them beginning in verse 13. If you only live once, then not even Christ has been raised. If you only live once, Jesus is dead, is what Paul says. The tomb is not empty. His remains are buried somewhere on this planet. He did not raise from the dead. Now, historically, uh, the number of historians who argue with the bodily resurrection of Jesus dwindles and has dwindled significantly because of historic fact. But Paul says, if you believe you only live once, uh, Jesus is dead. That's the first effect. Number two, if you believe you only live once, then our preaching is in vain. There's no purpose in what I'm doing. Preaching is a futile effort. Or I think about the 23 students I have who show up in my class at 8 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and they come to learn how to tear scripture apart and dig into it and they're facing a formidable test tomorrow morning first test of the semester if you only live once why in the world would you show up and study hard and be ready for such brutal treatment by your professor if you only live once why dig in and try to learn how to study God's word preaching is vain Uh, If you only live once, thirdly, your faith is futile. It's empty, it's wasted. There's no need for faith. If there's nothing beyond this life, there's no need for faith. Uh, Verse 15 is the fourth outcome or the fourth result of the philosophy of Drake's philosophy. If you only live once, then all preachers, Christian preachers, are liars. We're liars. We're preaching an empty gospel. We're selling something. We're no better than a midnight 30-minute infomercial trying to sell the latest and the greatest. We're liars. I remember when I was a sophomore in college, there was a... um, a rumor that spread that Nostradamus have predicted that there would be a murder on a small southern college campus that had a body of water on it that was near a railroad track. Well, okay, that's easy. That's about 80% of small colleges in the south. It would happen in the south. And so when that, uh, that rumor, you know, I think about that, that rumor when it spread, um, my roommate, uh, whose name was Steve Austin, who should have been stone cold, was scared to death. And so Steve said, Jerry, what happens if it's us? I said, Steve, we live on the fourth floor. 
It was in that time when in our dorm, they turned the air off, but they should have left it on. You know, you have those warm nights and warm days, and Steve said, and, and you leave your windows open. And Steve said, we can't leave the window open. I said, Steve, they're not going to scale all the way up. Why, why would they choose us? Why would they choose us and scale up the wall and come in our window on the fourth floor to kill us? And he said, well, we, I, I'm not sleeping in here with the windows open. So we close our windows. We're burning up. And he says, we've got to put a chair underneath the doorknob. Like, are you kidding me? No, he wasn't. So we go to bed that night. I'm an RA. We go to bed that night. Door underneath, or a chair underneath the door. The windows are closed. We're sweating it out. When about 2 a.m., my phone rings. And it's the campus police. And they said, Jerry, we got an issue. Somebody came in, left their car in neutral. It is rolled into another car. Um, they live on so-and-so floor. Would you go down? It was about 2 in the morning. Would you go down and tell them? I said, no. If I go down to that room and they don't answer and I use my master key and I walk in there, Nostradamus' prediction will come true. They will kill me on this night. People, I called a friend of mine who was a student at Wake Forest and she said people were getting rooms off campus because they feared this prediction would in fact come true. Well, as it turns out, we learned later it was a psychology class doing an experiment. That's what it was. What Paul says is if you only live once, preachers are no better than a Nostradamus prediction. We're hoping Jesus rose from the dead, and we're hoping there's going to be a resurrection one day, but we can't bet on it. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Fifth, if you only live once. You are in your sins. What does that mean? Well, does it mean that that you will sin? No, all of us sin. We all struggle with and against sin. What it means is that your sin will completely engulf you. It means that if Jesus is dead, you aren't in Christ. You're still in your sins. And finally... Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If you only live once when you die, that's it. And if you have loved ones who are dead, you'll never see them again. If you only live once, that's it. If Drake really believes what he says he'd better live it up. Because there is no hope. How much so? Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, even if we have Christ and our hope is just here, even with Jesus, we're pitiful people. If Jesus gave us just comfort and peace in this life and we experience that and there's no resurrection, there's no future, we're still pitiful people. If you only live once, no matter how moral you may live, no matter what a good life you may live and all the good that you can ever do, you're still to be pitied if you only live once. But Paul says... 
you only live twice. You only live twice, he says, but in fact. How can Paul say, but in fact? Well, if you go back a few verses, Adrian touched on this last week. Uh, There were 500 who Jesus appeared to post-resurrection. 500 witnesses, not only that Peter, Paul mentions it by name, and then, Peter, and then Paul says, he showed up to me. He showed up to me on the Damascus road. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What does he mean? All right, go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are put there. Don't eat of one tree. Guess what they do? They eat of one tree. Genesis 3 gives us the story. And God comes walking in the cool of the day, and they hid from him. And when they did, God of course, found them. They had a conversation, and God pronounced some curses. And in Genesis 3, verse 19, is the first mention of death. By the sweat of your face, God speaking to Adam, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It is the first mention that Adam is going back from where he came. He's going to die. And when we hear that, the reality is, is that we all inherited Adam's sin nature and we all inherited the inevitability of death. You say, Jerry, how do you know? If you don't believe you inherit the sin nature, just go work in our preschool department. Just go in there, take a new toy, drop it in the room. All right, a bunch of two-year-olds, and what are they going to do? That's mine. No, it's mine. I want to play with it. No, 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 mine. It's mine. Nobody teaches them that. It just comes natural. We are naturally sinful. We're naturally sinners, and we can thank Adam for that. Adam in his sin passed on to us all of humanity since then a sin nature that we inherit. And coming with that sin nature is death. And all of us think what an awful thing. And at first here you would think, yes, death is terrible. Death is awful. But I'm going to provide for you a different perspective. Genesis 3, same chapter, verses 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, before Adam sinned, he only knew good. He didn't know evil. You and I can't imagine that world, can we? Wow. Oh, that we could imagine a world where there was no jealousy, where there was no envy, where there was no death, where there was no sadness, where there was no terrorism, where there's no bullying, where there's no cheating, where there is no whatever fill in the blank. But we can't. But Adam and Eve knew it until they ate the fruit. And he says this, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he said, I've got to kick him out of the garden because in the garden there's a tree called life. And when you eat the fruit of the tree called life, you will live forever. It will somehow counteract this curse. And so he kicked him out. Why? Let me ask you a question. 
Could you imagine a Hitler who never dies? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine an evil Stalin who lives forever? Wow. Or, let's make it personal, could you imagine your aged, Alzheimer's-ridden grandmother who never dies? Ah. You see, grace, death was wrapped up in grace. There is something gracious about death that though it is our enemy, in it is grace. If Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit of the tree of life and they had never died, and life had continued on the sinful trajectory which it would have, life would be a living, utter hell. Oh, we fear death, and we don't embrace it, and we don't run after it. But in tremendous suffering, it's a gracious gift for tyrants. It's a gift. You only live twice, is what he says. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what Adam undid, God redid through Christ. But each in his own order, verse 23, Christ the firstfruits. Now this phrase, firstfruits, we never ever use anymore. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. I grew up in the country growing everything we ate. We just grew everything. My mom went to the grocery store once a week and came out with one bag of groceries about this big. And we grew or dad killed everything we ate. That's how I grew up. I still remember when dad would say, I'm going to go dig some new potatoes. Do you know what that meant? They were about this big. They had a very tender skin on them. Dad would dig them up. He would bring them in. Mom would take this tub that has something in it that many of you will not know what it is called lard. All right. Good stuff, all right? We raised our own hogs, and from those, we rendered our own lard. And so mom would take a little scoop of that white lard out, put it in a frying pan, gently wash off. Anybody hungry? Gently wash off those potatoes, cut them in half, put them in there, and just brown them crisp on both sides. Mmm, that was good. And we'd eat. Or... Dad would come in and he'd say, I don't know why we called it this. He'd say, I I picked a mess of beans. I don't know why you call them a mess, but Dad called them a mess. I grew up calling the first, calling a, a serving of green beans for a whole family. That's a mess. And so Dad would say, I picked a mess of beans. And he'd string and break those beans, or we would, and we'd eat them. And and they were so good, those first green beans. Same to go get a tomato, eat it. They were first fruits. Do you know what they meant? They meant, well, this one's good, but there's more coming. 
right? New potatoes are good, but there's more coming. One year, we planted potatoes. I don't know what happened. We dug 55 bushels. Those first tiny little potatoes said, this is good, but there's more coming. That first mess of green beans said, this is good, but mom will can. 200 quarts a year. 200 quarts of those things are coming. These tomatoes are good, but there's more coming. When Jesus is pictured as being the first fruits, it's saying he resurrected from the tomb, but that's not the one and done. He resurrected and there are a lot more coming. Amen. He resurrected from the tomb, and so will you if you are in Christ. He resurrected from the dead, and so will you if you die in Christ. That's what first fruits means. It means that his resurrection does not stand alone. His resurrection points forward to every other person who dies in Christ will rise. As a matter of fact, Paul writing to the Thessalonians who had significant questions about this said this is how it's going to go down. Jesus is going to call. There's going to be a trumpet sound. And when there's a trumpet sound, Jesus is going to return. And when he does, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And so we will always be together with the Lord. John would say at the end of his book, even so, come Lord Jesus. And I say amen to that. If you only live twice, then Jesus' resurrection was first fruits of what is to come. How's it going to go down? Paul gives us a list here, an order. Then he says, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, all believers. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. In other words, Jesus is going to kick butt and take names. That's what he's going to do. He's going to destroy every enemy, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And all God's people say, amen. Death will be destroyed. And then there's this conversation about even though Jesus is so great and he reigns so magnificently, he still humbly submits to his father. Unbelievable humility on his part. So what does this mean for you and me? Paul says you, you don't just live once. He says you only live twice. And in light of that, since you only live twice, he gives this is how you ought to live. He makes a logical argument against the Corinthians' position, some of whom did not believe in the resurrection. He says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Evidently, there was a practice in Corinth of that. He said, that's ludicrous, number one. And number two, it's ridiculous logic. If you don't believe Jesus is going to be, Jesus was resurrected, why would you be baptized on behalf of somebody who's not going to be? But then he says this, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? All right, so if you're taking notes, jot this down. Jot this down. If you only live twice, how should you live? That's the question. Number one, risk it all. Risk it all. He says, why 
are we in danger every hour. Later he says, uh, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If you only live twice, then risk your life for his. He goes on to say, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Number two, if you only live twice, twice, value others above yourself. Paul says to this troubled Corinthian church, I'm proud of you. My pride in you. Now, he qualifies that. He says it's Christ in you. But if you only live twice, value others above yourself. He says, if the dead are are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And just in case somebody thinks, okay, we can do that, he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you only live twice, choose your friends carefully. Choose your friends carefully. And let me interject here. If you're single in this room, choose whom you date carefully. You are who you are with. If you only live twice, choose your friends carefully. Bad company corrupts good morals. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. If you only live twice, quit sinning. Quit sinning. Now, it will only happen, as we've sung earlier, by the grace of God. Only the grace of God can give you victory over the sin that harasses you and entangles you. But by the grace of a risen Savior, you have power over that sin Quit sinning. And then he says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If you only live twice, spread his fame. Some don't even know about him. Tell others about Christ. If you really believe that you only live twice, then live like that. In 2012, Lecrae, the Christian hip-hop artist, apparently answered Drake's 2011 song. And it's safe enough to listen to. So I want you to watch the screen because some of the lyrics will escape you. Listen to Lecrae's Answer to Drake's 2011 YOLO. Let's check it out.
It was uh, probably about 10 years ago, maybe 12, that I landed in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. It was in the aftermath of Hurricane Mitch when thousands of people died in Honduras, especially in Tegus, on those hillsides. I was met once we got to the mission by a couple by the name of Larry and Jean Elliott. They beamed. They were in their late 50s at the time, but the wear and tear of uh, missionary life had not shown itself on them at all. There they are on the screen. They were smiling, energetic, thrilled to see a team that had arrived to help with that work. And uh, so since I speak Spanish, we talked to one another. They uh, had a passion. They had gone to Honduras for one reason. Turned out God had something else in mind. And what God had in mind was that they go to dig wells. Good water became their passion and their expertise. And so they had helped Hondurans all over that country get good water, especially in the aftermath of Mitch. And so they welcomed teams and they welcomed us and we worked together for a week and they were just a shining light. It was tremendous. It was wonderful to see them and we finished our work that week or so. I think we were there about 10 days and we left and came home and and they had made an imprint on my life. It was just maybe two years after that that I was watching the news, CNN or Fox, when I heard their names And I thought, no. They were near retirement when I was there, and their thought was to come home to the States. They're from North Carolina. Come to the States and retire from their mission work. But around that time, uh, 9-11 had just happened. The Iraq War, Iraq opened up, and the uh, mission board had reached out to them and said, Iraq needs clean water. Would you go? And in their 60s, they went. When they should have been retiring, when they should have been sitting on the sidelines, watching um, everybody else do what they once did, in their 60s, they headed to Iraq. And when I watched the news that day, Larry and Jean happened to be in a vehicle with three others. There were five of them when terrorists surrounded it and mowed all but one of them down. And Larry and Jean died in Iraq in their 60s trying to get clean water. To Iraqis. I sat there in total silence in front of that TV. They eventually got their bodies back to the States, had a tremendous service for them as they were honored. Why? Why why would you do that? Because Larry and Jean believed you only live what church? Twice. Twice. They believed it. 
And for them, that meant you retire in Iraq with shrapnel in your body. Will it mean that for you? No. But for some of you, here's what it means right now. And in a wrong relationship, it means reorganizing some priorities that have gotten out of whack with your wallet or with your time. It means signing up instead of sitting on the sidelines. It means stepping up on the team that you play on or in the eighth grade or in the twelfth or on your hall in college. It means saying no to your boss when he comes to you again with a dishonest idea. It means going to the mission field if God calls you to go. And for some of you who've never known Christ ever, it means like Kathy, letting go of yourself and letting go of your ideas and letting Christ become your one and only so that you can sing as Amy beautifully led us to sing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Only the Holy Spirit can tell you what it means to you.